we die with Christ and we are raised with Him uh, to walk in newness of life. And we talk about that when we observe water baptism. We're buried with Him in the likeness of His death and raised in the likeness of His resurrection. So in many ways, this act that took place at salvation, this resurrection, is um, a foreshadowing. It's actually a it's, it's a memorial or looking back to what Christ has done, but it's also a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to, uh, to our bodies, that we will be raised from the dead. Our chains will fall off completely and, and our hearts will be completely free in that free to obey God <clears throat> without hindrance of sin. And so here in 1 Corinthians 15, we are um, considering the resurrection because apparently the, the church there in in Ephesus, or in Corinth, excuse me, um, were having problems understanding how how in the world the dead could be raised. And um, so they were buying into the idea that maybe the dead aren't raised. Um, and so Paul wants to discuss in this chapter the, the guarantee of the resurrection, which we'll talk about here in a minute, and then also the the means of the resurrection, which we saw last week, Remember the question from verse 35 was, how are the dead raised and what kind of body do they come? And with what kind of body do they come? And in reply, Paul said that the the dead will receive a body that is equal in identity but different in substance. So it's got the same kind of DNA. It's going to be a similar makeup to what you have now, but it's different in substance. And what analogy did Paul use to illustrate this transformation? Remember? Okay, to look. I'll give you a hint. Let me see. <clears throat> it's um, verse 36 and following. What analogy is the resurrection likened to? Yeah, so we're talking about a seed. A seed of wheat, like Jesus said. Unless, unless uh, a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it... it um, it dies alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So that when the seed dies, it brings forth life. So that the, the analogy works with our future resurrection bodies. That our perishable, perishable bodies that are now decaying and eventually will die will be the kind of seed that's buried in the ground that will sprout up into an imperishable body. And this shouldn't be hard for us to understand because this kind of thing happens all the time in the farming industry. That something dead goes into the ground, something dies, and it actually brings forth life. There's some kind of life germ in that. God has the ability to bring life out of um, what is dead, and that's exactly what happens with our resurrection body. The questions before us tonight are twofold. First, what about those who are living at the time of the rapture? Paul's going to bring up that issue. And then secondly, what does this knowledge about our future resurrection mean for us today? And what should it cause us to do? So first, what's going to happen to those who are still alive? And then secondly, what do we do about all this knowledge of the resurrection? All right, so let's look at our text beginning in verse 50. This is the Word of God. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So, two parts to what we're going to look at tonight. First, we need to recognize our future, uh, recognize our future resurrection and then live in light of it. So recognize and live in light of your future resurrection. I think that's what Paul and the Holy Spirit want us to see tonight. Recognize and live in light of your future resurrection. Verses 50 through 56 talk about that first part. We need to recognize it. We need to acknowledge it as true that the resurrection is not only guaranteed as we saw last time, but it's a necessity. It has to happen. This transformation specifically has to happen. So recognize it. And then we'll see in verses 57 and 58, we need to live in light of it. All right, so first. The resurrection is unavoidable for the living and the dead. Or maybe a better way to say this is the transformation. Because um, this future resurrection um, doesn't necessarily technically happen to a person who's living. So these people who are, I'm going to argue, raptured, they actually don't get resurrected. Instead, they they actually just get transformed. So the resurrection or this transformation is unavoidable for the living and the dead. So there are two parts to this first section. First, no one can enter the kingdom without an imperishable body. And second, not all Christians will experience death. So in verses 50 and 53, we see that no one can enter the eternal kingdom without an imperishable body. So there's two, there, there's two negatives there, no one and without. So we could state that positively. In order to enter the kingdom, you have to have an imperishable body. In order to enter the kingdom, you have to have an imperishable body. And two lines show us that that is the case. Verse 50, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So when you think flesh and blood, don't think anything necessarily evil in those things, right? Jesus had flesh and blood, and pre-fall Adam and Eve had flesh and blood. Nothing inherently evil in those things. But think, since the time of the fall, decaying, subject to death. That's what you should think of when you think of flesh and blood. So those kinds of things, that kind of body cannot inherit the eternal kingdom of God. And then the second line in verse 50 basically restates it. It's a, what... Um, uh, an English teacher would call synonymous parallelism. So it's synonymous with the first line. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The perishable body cannot inherit... Uh, um, the, the perishable cannot inherit the, the imperishable. In other words, corruptible, corrupt, corruptible bodies are not fit for eternity. Our bodies as they are are not fit for the presence of God. Our bodies in their current makeup are not fit for eternity because this fallen body is subject to decay and sin. And so that's why he says in the second part of verse 50, the perishable body cannot inherit 
the imperishable life. There has to be some kind of transformation that takes place, which is what, what he's going to get to. Again, in verse 15, 53, we have another synonymous parallelism stating effectively the same thing. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, again, stating the same sort of point. Our corruptible bodies, subject to sin and decay, are not equipped, they're not fit for the eternal kingdom of God. Now, what Paul uh, goes on to say here is the second part in verses 51 and 52, and that is that not all Christians will experience death. I mean, the first point that he made, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he has an imperishable body, that is not new because Paul had already talked about that in verses 29 through 49. But here we have something new. Paul says this is a mystery. Now again, every time you see the word mystery in the Scriptures, don't think secret um, secret that can't be resolved or some kind of hidden, um, hidden idea that's unknowable. You know, don't think of mystery that way or something that we have to try to unlock the key. Uh, uh, unlock with the key. The idea of a mystery is something that was previously hidden but now is revealed. So, for example, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a mystery uh, in the fact that the Old Testament believers didn't understand it. They had all the Old Testament that they couldn't quite see how Jews and Gentiles could come together under the authority of Jesus Christ in one place called the church. Paul says in Ephesians, uh, I think it's at the end of chapter 2, he says, this is a mystery that I'm now revealing to you. So it's not, again, it's not something that we can't know. It's something that was previously hidden and now is being revealed. Paul's saying the same thing is true about this. And what is this mystery? Notice verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Here it is. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So the fact is, is that not all Christians will experience Death. In fact, some Christians will enter the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom, without ever dying. But if they entered the eternal kingdom of God with their present corruptible bodies, they wouldn't be fit to come into the presence of God. They would be destroyed. So the point is that most Christians will die. They will sleep. That's the idea of sleep there. They will be transformed like that, that analogy that we talked about earlier, the seed from turning to, from a seed to a harvest, to a full-grown crop. Most people will die that way. Most believers will exchange their corruptible body by virtue of their death. But others will escape death altogether. That's why he says that in verse 51, we will not all sleep. Now, some people look at that statement and say, well, this is where Paul thinks that Jesus is coming back during his lifetime. See, we will not all sleep. We know that some of you, actually, Jesus is going to come back during your lifetime. The problem with that view, by the way, is, and I think I have actually, I have actually made that statement before, um, and now that I look at this passage, I see that that's not what Paul was talking about because the fact is that Paul couldn't know when Christ would return. Right? Because no one knows the day or the hour when he will return. So he must have been saying that, that, that we all, in terms of future Christians that come along, he, he didn't know that Christ was going to come back during his lifetime. He's just saying that we all believers from the time of Pentecost to the time of Christ's return, we will not all sleep. 
And that could be us that he's talking about. Because Jesus could come today. Jesus could come next week. Jesus could come next year and we could avoid death altogether and be translated into our future glorified bodies. That's the mystery. Not everyone will experience death. Now, how will this happen? How will this transformation of living believers actually happen? Verse 52 gives us an indication of how it will happen. Two ways. In a moment, at the beginning of the verse, and in the twinkling of an eye. So here, he's just saying, he's talking about the speed of which it will, of, of how it will happen or when it will happen, right? It, this twinkling of an eye, it's the smallest measure of time, right? The twinkling of an eye, the, the, the blinking of the eye happens in an instant, faster than a second. And so he's saying that's how fast this transformation process is going to happen. It's going to happen in a flash. In a fraction of a second, we're going to be changed. We're going to be transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So when will this happen? When will this transformation of living believers happen? So there are some who escape death and move right on into their eternal state or their eternal bodies. And when will this happen? Well, three things give us a clue here at verse 52. Trumpet, resurrection, and transformation. So there first has to be a trumpet, then there has to be a resurrection, and then the trans- transformation happens. So what we're talking about is this third part. Look at the end of verse 52. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So the we will be changed there is talking about those who are still alive and remain. And he's saying before that can happen, there has to be the resurrection of the dead. And before that can happen, there has to be a trumpet sound. So three things, trumpet, resurrection, then transformation. Now, the trumpet call in the Old Testament was used to announce victory or to summon people to battle. But the trumpet was also used to announce the arrival of the king. Right? You see this in movies today. Right? You kind of have this fanfare going on. With these, you know, these guys dressed up really nicely with the super long trumpets and, and they, they blow these trumpets and, and the king uh, arrives in his horse and chariot or whatever. And it was also used in the Old Testament to announce the coming of the day of the Lord. Paul here uses it to describe this time of the rapture. Do you remember 1 Thessalonians? Let's turn, turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'll uh, show you this other passage on the rapture. This is not, these are not the only two passages in the Scripture on the rapture, but here are two clear ones, I think. 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. <coughs> Let's start in verse 14 just so you can see that, that Paul is uh, also talking about the second part, not just the trumpet that he's going to talk about in verse 16, but in verse 14 he's going to talk about the dead being raised. So verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, or probably better, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the people who have died in Christ will be raised first, and then we come after them. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Again, he states the dead are going to be raised. But notice it happens after the trumpet. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So here Paul basically gives the same threefold um, timeline of the rapture. Trumpet, dead will be raised, and then those who are alive will be caught up in the air to be with the Lord. But what he didn't say in 1 Thessalonians 4 is what exactly is going to happen when we meet the Lord in the air. We just know we're going to be there with Him forever. What 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is that when we meet Him in the air, we're going to be transformed. If we have the privilege of escaping death and joining Christ in the clouds, that's what it means when he says the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, not descend all the way to the earth, but rather descend from heaven and we're going to meet Him in the clouds, the dead in Christ after the trumpet, dead in Christ arise first, they get their resurrection bodies, right? their um, glorified bodies, the, the bodies fit for eternity, imperishable, incorruptible, that, that body. And then we join them in the clouds. And what happens when we get there is that our bodies will be transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed. We will be changed. That's what the text says here in 1 Corinthians 15. So the trumpet, and then the dead in Christ, and then we which are alive and remain. At that time, we will receive our imperishable, incorruptible bodies, never to return to sin and decay again. Never to have to fear that, you know what, these bodies, you know, they may not hold up. It's amazing the, uh, the constitution of the human body, if you consider... Uh, People like, was it Adam that lived till, or is it Noah that lived till 900 and some years old? Methuselah, 969 years old. So, I mean, a person has the capability and the right kind of environment, apparently, to be able to live in these corruptible bodies for a really long time. But what we're talking about are bodies that are fit for eternity and doing something that no no one of our bodies could ever do. And that is stand in the presence of the unshielded glory of God and actually see His face. Um, and so that's what we need. We need an incorruptible body that's not ever subject to sin and decay. So when we receive these bodies, we'll never have to worry about, you know what, I don't know if it's going to hold up. It's, it's fit for eternity. It's fit for the kingdom fit for standing in the presence of the, of the Almighty God in His unshielded glory. No need to hide our faces. You know, like the picture of Isaiah 6 where you have the, the cherubim who are around the throne. You've got the, the wings of, of the cherubim that are covering their eyes. No need for us to do that because our bodies will be fit for eternity. So, the resurrection is unavoidable probably better um, the transformation that's going to happen is unavoidable for the living and the dead. Secondly, the resurrection results in the death of death. Verses 54 through 56. The resurrection results in the death of death. So this all goes under the idea that no one can enter the eternal kingdom without an imperishable body. And what this means is that when this resurrection, when this transformation occurs, we will have experienced the abolition of death. 
Notice what verse 54 says. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, so this body that's now clothed in perishable you know, corruption is exchanged for imperishable bodies, then what's going to happen? He states basically the same thing in the middle of verse 54. And this mortal body will have put on immortality. What's going to happen? Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In verse 26, Paul said, the last enemy to be abolished is death. We said that one of the last acts of judgment that God ever does is He throws Satan and death into the eternal hell. Never to to trouble us again. There will be complete defeat and destruction of death. That's why I say the death of death. Death is like a bully at school for us in this lifetime. We hate death. We are fearful of death. We cower at its presence. But then, a stronger one comes along and punches the bully in the mouth. And he's left. The bully is left never to harm us again. And that stronger one is Jesus. And with His resurrection, He has punched death in the mouth. And even though we haven't experienced the full abolition of death, right? the full abolishment of death, we don't fear it like we once did, right? Because death doesn't have a hold on us. Notice what it says there in verse 55. O death, where is your sting? First it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In other words, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance against Christians. You are powerless. Death is like a lion with no teeth. Anybody afraid of a lion with no teeth? What's he going to do? Gum us to death? Right? It actually maybe tickle a little bit. It's trying to gum our arm off or something. Yeah, we won't, <clears throat> we won't talk about that, okay? How about this one? It's, it's as if death is, is like a, a swarm of killer bees. And when Christ rose from the dead, the bees were enclosed, trapped. They didn't have the full effect that they once could have. Effectively, they had lost. But they still had power in their sting. They still had the power to bring about death in our lives and the lives of the people that we love. But there's coming a time when the mortal is replaced with immortality and it'll be at that time where we say, where we sing, Oh, death, where is your sting? Be like a killer bee with no stinger. More like a fly or a harmless pet. Notice what death, again, is called for believers in verse 51. What's it called? It doesn't actually use the word death, but what is it called? Sleep. So even when death is at the pinnacle of its power for Jesus and for us believers who follow Jesus, who are in Him, death is like sleep to us. It's only temporary. It's not harmful. We actually get translated, if we do die as believers, we get trans- translated from life to eternal life. So we don't actually feel the, we feel the agony of death and leading up to it, but, but actually when death actually occurs, we don't feel the separation that there would be, right? That's the real pain of death, isn't it? That the person dies with unforgiven sin. That's not us. Because we have Jesus 
on our side. We are in Him. And so death then becomes like a stingerless bee. But through Christ's conquering of sin, He has proved that He has defeated death. Notice verse 56. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So through His conquering of sin, He proves He defeats death. Right? Sin is the initial cause of death, right? We could ask the question, which came first, sin or death? Sin came first, right? Sin led to death. That's what Romans says. Uh, that I can't remember how it goes, but Romans 5, so they all have sinned, and death came by sin. So sin, sin was the initiator of this evil enemy death, And when Christ defeats sin at the cross, what does He show that He's defeated about what sin brings about? He shows that He's defeated death as well, and that's obviously clear in in the resurrection. Now, the law is the agent of sin. The law is what shows us that we are sinners. So this death that once had a hold on us doesn't have a hold on us because Christ defeated sin and death. And this law that once had a grip on us, that shackled us, showing us our sin has no power on us because with sin and death, so the law has no power over us. And what I mean by the law is, is this thing that shows us our sin, this, this um, taskmaster, as Paul calls it, points us to our, our wretched state. All of those things are of no consequence to us who are in Christ because our sins are completely forgiven. Death doesn't have a sting. And the law has no hold on us. We are under the law of Christ. So, we need to first recognize our future resurrection, that it's necessary. It has to happen. This transformation has to happen. Whether we're dead, we need to be transformed. Or we're alive, we need to be transformed. We have to have an incorruptible body in order to enter the eternal kingdom. So what do we do with all this? That's the second question we wanted to consider. The first question was, what happens to those who are living at the time of the rapture? The second is, what, what do we do with all this? And there's two parts to it. First, the resurrection calls us to praise. And this is implied in verse 57. And I say implied, it's not a commandment here for us to to praise God, but it seems to be implied based on what Paul does. When he's thinking about all this truth, as I think you are thinking as well, the natural reaction, the natural response is the same response that Paul has, right? What is it? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the thought, as it goes through our mind, that death is going to be dead, finally causes Paul to break out in thanksgiving to God. Praise be to God for His indescribable gift. And so I think we ought to follow this pattern. Even though it's not given in the form of a command, I think we ought to follow this pattern to give thanks to God because of this transformation that's going to happen because of the death of that. And then, finally, this is the main application that Paul gives in verse 58, and that is that the resurrection or this transformation calls us to spiritual usefulness The resurrection or this transformation calls us to spiritual usefulness. 
So we could ask the question, Paul, how do we apply the doctrine of the resurrection? You just spent all this, all these paragraphs to this letter to the church in Corinth saying what the resurrection is, when it happens, how it happens, what happens to those who actually don't die. And so what do we do with all this, Paul? And he gives three exhortations. Stand up, stand firm, and stand long. First, stand up. Stand up. Notice what he says in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So first, stand up. Be steadfast. In other words, stay true to the faith. Stand up for what is true and right. Be confident in Christ's resurrection and be confident in your future resurrection. Remember, this is the problem at Corinth. They are not, they, they seem to be confident in Christ's resurrection, but they're not confident in their own future resurrection. Paul says, be steadfast in what is true. You know this is right. This is why I'm reminding, of you, reminding you of it. So stand up. And then secondly, unmovable. So stand firm. So it's one thing to stand up. It's another thing to stand firm, right? I mean, we could easily be unseated by the winds of storm or by, you know, being distracted because other people are, are standing all around or, you know, we're, we're on unsettled ground or whatever the case. What Paul is saying is be unmovable in your belief that the resurrection is real. Don't let anything unsettle you from your firm foundation on the fixed gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of the resurrection. Stand up and stand firm. And then thirdly, stand long. In other words, stay there for a long time. Don't move. And I get that from the middle of verse 58. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. So in other words, when you stand firm, stay there for a long time. When storms come, don't move. Be confident in the Scriptures and its truth. When people abandon their post, and they once apparently were standing firm and now they've turned away, don't follow them. You stay standing firm. Standing up, standing firm, and standing long. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And notice, having done everything to stand firm. This is our goal as Christians. You know, we often think that the Christian life is, we need to go on the attack. You know, we need to find all of the demons and Satan, and we're going to go on the attack and try to defeat him. That's not our purpose. That's not our goal. We don't have the ability to do that. Our job is to withstand his attacks. Right? Paul goes on to say, Stand firm, therefore. So he's already said it twice. Having done everything to stand firm, then he says in the very next word, Stand firm, therefore, putting on the whole armor of God. Then he lists all the armor pieces. And then he, he concludes like this. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. You know, we think that the Christian life is all about being on the offensive against all of our enemies. And Paul's saying, no, just stand your ground. Our king has already won the battle when he died for our sins. And he defeated sin and death. Our job is not to gain ground on the enemy. Our job is to hold our ground. And we know that if we do that in the power of Christ, that not the gates, not even the gates of hell, can prevail against Christ's church. Stand firm. Stand up, stand firm, and stand long. The way that we do that 
is by living a life that is faithful to God, living a life of works. We'll get to that here in the application. But notice, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So I think this has to do somewhat with our proper understanding of the gospel, but it also has with an outflow of the gospel, right? Actually living out what we believe, abounding in the work of the Lord. So two very obvious applications. This sermon kind of writes itself. Two various obvious applications that come directly from Paul. The transformation of all believers is guaranteed. Therefore, we should praise God. That's from verse 57. And then, secondly, we should live a faithful life. So first, we should praise God for the death of death. Or we could say praise the Son of God for the death of death. Here's a a line, a couple lines from a song called See What a Morning. And we are raised with Him. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. And we shall reign with Him for He lives. Christ is risen from the dead. And then this is from the Power of the Cross song that we sing here. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds for through your suffering I am free. <coughs> death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. The Son of God was slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. The reason I chose those two songs was because of this idea of death dying, right? Death is dead, love is won, the first one said. And then the second song said, death is crushed to death. Exactly what happens by virtue of Christ's powerful Uh, death and resurrection. He defeated sin and death. And so this chain of sin and death that started in Genesis 3 will come to an end. Aren't you thankful for that? Well, then use your voice tonight to praise Christ for the death of death. We're going to give ourselves time to do that later when we break up into smaller groups to pray. But I would encourage you to to praise God that He has defeated. Praise the Savior He has defeated death once and for all. It's only a matter of time before its sting. Its stinger is taken away. Before its teeth are gone. It has no, not even a temporal effect on us. Second application comes from verse 58, and that is, live as if your present life matters. Live as if your present life matters for eternity, and we could put in parentheses, because it does. Live as if your present life matters for eternity. Because the resurrection of Christ is real, and our future resurrection is guaranteed, and Paul says our work for Christ must not be half-hearted. This is what the Holy Spirit is encouraging us to do in verse 58. That we are useful in the cause of Christ. Notice what he says there at the end. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You ever get the sense like all this ministry that you're doing has little value or any value, has no value? Paul says, what you do for Christ will last. It's not in vain. You remember Paul's argument earlier in the chapter? He said, if the dead are not raised then what? 
We are to be pitied. He says a number of things. But if the dead are not raised, our faith is in vain. We're still in our sins. Christ has not been raised. That was the surprising one to me. If we are not raised from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And that's why we're still in our sins. That's why we're, we're, we're most to be pitied. His point was that Christ's resurrection is inseparably linked to ours. We are united to Him in His death. Which means that we're also united with Him in His resurrection. It's guaranteed. If we don't get raised from the dead, then Christ never got raised from the dead. But Christ has been raised from the dead. That's what Paul goes on to say. And therefore, we will be raised. We are united with Him in this resurrection. And so our faith is not in vain and we are not under the weight of our sin and we are not to be pitied. And here in verse 58, he says, your work for the sake of Christ is valuable. Are you confident in that tonight? That your toil is not in vain in the Lord no matter how small or unimportant it seems. The fact that you labor to the point of exhaustion, that's the idea there in the last phrase there, knowing that your toil, this is the, this is the idea of just laboring to the point of exhaustion. The fact that you do that for the sake of Christ does not go without notice. If there were no resurrection, then all of your work would be burned up when the earth is burned up. But since there is a resurrection, the deeds you do in Christ for the sake of spiritual gain, they are useful. They are not futile. They have eternal value. And therefore, you and I ought to live our lives like our present lives matter. We must not waste our lives on perishable pursuits and godlessness and on things that will be burned up. You know, just ask yourself, you know, in this pursuit of what I'm doing, does this actually have any help or um, will this bring about any type of good in the next year or the next five years? Or how about for eternity? Will it actually accomplish any good? Will it, will it bring any results for the sake of eternity? Jesus says it this way, Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal. You can't take your money with you, but you can store up treasures for yourself by purposefully working for the sake of Christ, by purposely using your money for the sake of Christ. So make Christ... Christ's desires, your desires, make His wishes, your commands. Spend your life and be spent for the sake of the gospel. Because of the resurrection, you can be sure that all of the work that you do, all the spiritual work that you do, is not in vain. Any questions or comments?